Hey guys, this is Mike Shields, and this week on Next in Marketing, I got to talk to Aaron Braxton, who is VP of Business Intelligence and SEO at Complex Networks, as well as GM of Complex Collective. He talks about the advantages he found in having almost no media or advertising background when he joined the company a few years ago, and how kindergarten pickup actually played a crucial role in his recruiting process. Let's get started. Everything we know about the media, marketing, and advertising business is being completely upended thanks to technology and data. We're talking with some of the top industry leaders as they steer their companies through constant change. Welcome to Next in Marketing, presented by AppsFlyer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Next in Marketing. My guest today is Aaron Braxton from Complex Networks. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for being hey. here. Hey, Mike. How are you? Good to talk to you. I'm good. I'm good. Give everybody your title. You're head of business intelligence, right? Yeah. So I've, I've, I've got two titles. I don't, I don't know if that's common or not in media practice, but um, certainly common. I think it's at, quite common. Common enough. At, yeah, certainly common enough at Complex. So I am a VP, head of business intelligence and SEO. Uh, I'm also, uh, second title, GM for Complex Collective, uh, which is our research arm of, of, comp, of Complex Networks. Your LinkedIn's pretty different. Um, you 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 do not have a classic media background. Maybe can you can you talk about like what, what you were doing before Complex and how you got here? Sure. Yeah. Um. And, and that's right. I um I come from a very non traditional background for you know data practitioner for media professional marketer researcher. Um. Really, however you might might want to frame it. You know, I cut my teeth early in finance um, in prime brokerage, which is like a service function for hedge and private equity fund clients within institutional banking. Um, and then I went on to run trading and partner operations within alternative asset management. Um, same general space, but you know that's sort of where the analytics starts to focus in. And then eventually uh, I went on to management consulting, focused on those same clients, but just in a widening sort of functional areas. First, you know, it was ops and then it was analytics and ops. And so when you think about like, that landscape, it's iBanks, it's hedge funds, it's private equity, and then sort of quickly quickly applying that skill set to a widening uh, client focus. You know, I, I worked with manufacturers, media companies, uh, tech infrastructure, cards as well. Um, you know, I probably worked with every top five global bank, Amex, Google, I'm thinking Barnes and Noble. Um, we did some really interesting things with, and then a ton of companies you probably don't know uh, and never have heard of. And so along that path, I taught myself how to code and because I needed the skill set and starting with SQL and then moving on to Python and R, you know, when you're starting, you're starting then to sort of layer on the data engineering part of the parts of, of uh, the analytics sort of skill set as well. And then you, you know, when you mix that up all with uh, statistical analysis and the operational finance, uh, then some of the innovation work I've been doing over the years, you've got an admittedly weird, but probably strong set of skills that I like to apply across a number of areas of complex. We talked a little bit about that. Those are, you know, again, business intelligence, SEO, audience research, and then sort of assorted special projects, skunk works, if you will. Right. So when you're working for companies like Bank of America, you weren't, what, you're, are you helping them essentially try and digitize their business and apply more analytics broadly and build out more efficiency? You're trying to help them come, become more operationally efficient? Like, what was there a common thread to what you were doing before you got here? 
Yeah, see, those are the cool projects at a B of A, right? I mean, there are are, are admittedly some you know less exciting work there. You know, deal, dealing with capital constraints, CCAR, uh, dealing with backend operations, sort of like trading functions, black box systems, algorithmic trading systems. Actually, that's sort of cool. And so the, it really ran the gamut when you're talking about working with banks. It can be like just lightly operational and more process oriented tasks versus you know some of the more interesting stuff when you get into like trading systems and you know derivative tracking and, and that kind of thing. It's funny when you're describing your background. I would I could almost see you ended up working for like a big programmatic ad tech company. Was there any, was there any ever consideration of going to that world when you start talking about applying trading algorithmic analysis? Honestly, no. Uh, programmatic was probably the last. I mean, while while I had come and going working with media companies, some understanding of what programmatic exchanges were uh, and how programmatic ad layers sort of deliver and what that you know sort of that structure and architecture looks like. So I know that much better now. Really had sort of a, a good entry point. I mean, it was it was a bit of a crash course for me to go you know deep on the way that complex viewed sort of revenue diversity and 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 ad layer to the point where I could go start to innovate within that framework. You know, I had some pretty good guidance though. Um, Scott Churkin, who's now at Warner, Dan Goshroy, who's at Professional Fighters League, now Jonathan Hunt, um, who's head of audience at Complex, and of course Christian Basler, um, who's brilliant, sure. and uh, maybe most of all Rich Antonello, uh, you know, who's you know the, who's, who's an icon in the, in, the, in in this world. Uh, so how did you, okay. So how did you end up here though? Like, were they, were they talk with it? Cause I, you know, lots of publishers in the last, let's say five years more, we've got to get better in business intelligence. We've got to like apply our money ball formula, but I think, I don't know if they always know how to, where to get that talent from. Like, how did they find you? How did you end up here? They didn't find me. I found them. I, I was looking to make a shift. I, you know, I'd identified amongst my sort of favorite projects and clients that media companies were way more fun and, I was at that point in a career where I could have gone, you know, sort of partner track and, but at, you know, within, within management consulting, but, but really wanted to like, you know, keep it, keep it fun and interesting on a day over day basis. Um, and maybe not end up in like Tulsa, Oklahoma on, on random Sunday nights. So <laughs> <laughs> that, um, that led me to some like thinking back to some of the client work I'd done with, you know, your, the Amexes of the world, uh, some of the Googles of the world and thinking about, you know, it'd be, it'd be really interesting for, to try to lean into the analytics space, lead an analytics practice. And st- so I started combing, you know, job sites and, and doing research deep into who was doing what within analytics, who maybe needed some help from an uplift standpoint with regard to like BI, which identified, you know, as like sort of a, that's a nice through line for most publishers. Most publishers at that point had a business intelligence function, but there was a lot of variance into how well it looked like they were executing. And so I started looking around as it happens. And I'll tell this, I'll tell this story if you don't mind it. Um, my, my daughter, when she started kindergarten here in Brooklyn, one of her co one of her classmates in that, in that year, her dad happened to work at complex. So I offered to, to take him for a beer. He and, and we we hit it off, and I started talking about you know why we were having this conversation, and um, we ended up we ended up being really good friends to this day. And he was nice enough to introduce me to Complex, and the the fit was right, um, the the need was right. Their BI team at the time was a little bit back office um, and and pretty isolated, and the but they had a desire you know to make sort of data analysis and data decisioning you know, uh, much wider and, and better practice throughout the company. Uh, and so that was my task. Um, so we've done a good job of that so far. I think we've, we've kind of, we sort of moved beyond the, the idea that that business intelligence specifically is, uh, you know, is back off. It's, it's, it's certainly much more front office and it's certainly much more embedded in the culture of what we do. 
this is the ultimate like networking industry. But it's usually the deals happen over <laughs> over cocktails in camp and not a kindergarten line. But that's that's a cool story. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you you, you hinted on this. Most publishers were realizing, okay, we've got a business intelligence. But you you mentioned not everybody was doing that great with that or, or, or getting the most out of that practice as they could. Would you, have you seen that across the board in the industry and where, where are the gaps that they're not being filled right now? Yeah, I think it, it, it's, it, you asked a really interesting question because, you know, BI means a lot of different things to a different folks. And a lot of what it, what gets implemented at companies from a business intelligence standpoint can really be shifted towards maybe one or two different operational areas within a company. You know, it can be focused on content. You can have BI application. It's really just about sales uh, and optimizing CRM, uh, more like you know, optimizing against paid media. And, you know, it can be, it can be fairly isolated. Uh, and so uh, a full BI implementation, you know, there's like a maturity cycle that you look at from a data analytics standpoint on a, on an enterprise level, you're either coming up front and self, just helping to inform, right? Not necessarily making the decisions for folks or really even necessarily like really even driving a decision, but making sure that there's a, a, a piece of data applied to uh, most of the decisioning that's happening. That's pretty early on in maturity. Um, later on, you move into doing projection, right? You you know, you talk a lot about your podcast as I, did, as I dug into some of your, your archive about deterministic versus probabilistic. And you know, deterministic comes in a business intelligence standpoint as well. You can, you know, do projection uh, algorithmic. You can do projection, you know, based on just just like flat projection from correlation and apply some of those things to both business processes as well as content generation. What we've done at Complex, I think, is a really good way of injecting data layer and decisioning all the way across most parts of the company, right? So that's everything from you know, strategy to content production, work really, really closely with sales and sales strategy, finance, paid media, e-com events. What we try to do is create a data and insight interface, as well as be a business operations guider. As additionally to that, we're a sort of an audience interface for behavioral, and that extends out to building like insight narratives, right? So it's a pretty wide map, but it allows me and my team to sort of contribute to most everything we create in some way, either that, whether that's from ideation to all the way out to like realization. Uh, you you hinted at my next question. I was going to ask you: Are you strictly the, the work, the kind of work you do? You might think you're on the business side, and that's it. But you're you, you're able to apply this across editorial and business. Can you talk about how that how that works? Especially, I think the editorial side. Every editor will say they want to have lots of data and they want to know where their audience is coming from, audience development. But they they get a little they get a little nervous when somebody from anywhere from biz dev gets in their space and makes them feel like they're going to dictate what they do. How do you work across both sides? Interestingly enough, I feel like we're a bit of a buffer between the biz dev folks and the editorial folks. I meet with and, and work with our editorial teams on a daily basis. We build out their the modeling for them from a traffic expectation standpoint. So like you know, projecting both uh, volume of content as well as what the, you know, as well as what the revenue, the RPMs are going to be from that specific content, even down to advising on staffing, uh, you know, and how many people would be required in order to build out some of that. Now, this is not necessarily directive, right? It's about helping them to do their best and, and, and set them up for success. Um, you know, on the layer, the layer on top of that comes from the SEO side where we're looking at, you know, content type and affinities and what channels these things should be deployed on from an editorial standpoint to most, you know, to have most effect on audience and, 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 and to see the most benefit from. And so it's a, it's a really bi-directional relationship. We always try to make sure that we leave room for creativity, right? I'm not a writer. 
and mm-hmm. I and I and I and I would never tell anybody what to write, but I can tell you where what you write is going to do the best, and what social sure. platforms it should be like deployed on as support. And so we weave all of those things together in support of our editorial practices, and we do that as well for our other content types. So you're not sitting there saying, okay, don't write that article because the ROI is going to stink; it's not worth doing. But this this beat might be worth doing more of, or this this you know things are really popping on Facebook in this subject matter versus Tumblr or something. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, the, the, again, we're sort of trying to bridge the idea that there are audiences are, are diverse and, you know, and, and there's a multitude of them, but they're all very different and, and on their various distribution channels, right? So our Facebook audience is super different from our Twitter audience versus our TikTok audience versus ours, you know, our, our general direct on site audience. And so the orientation of what we build needs to make sure that it's aligned to where it shows up to like where those audiences are going to find it. So there's a difference between the content, even editorially, that we're going to push in a link post from Twitter versus what we put on Facebook. And it's my, my team's job to let the editorial teams and the social teams as a, as a support engine as well, uh, know what, like what the, what the best course of action is there. That's interesting. I, I, I might not have expected that. I understand the differences between the, the viewership patterns or consumption patterns on the platforms, but I would always think your audience is the same. I don't, for, I should start, start off by saying like, how do you de- describe or define who, who, who the complex networks fan is. And then maybe we can get into how it's different on TikTok versus Facebook versus your site. It's actually a really difficult question to answer. One, because there's so many different versions of that fan, right? The complex networks consist of complex, which is, you know, streetwear and music and fashion and pop culture rolled up into one and spoken about at this, almost at the same time, right? So it's, a con- it's convergence that goes deep. Now, the first we feast audience, you know, uh, is food first, but it talks about food within a pop culture lens. And then we have, you know, Soul Collector, which is, and I'm talking about the three sort of tentpole arms, there are are a multitude of others, um, that's sneaker focused first, right? And so it talks about sneakers, it's about sneaker heads, there's pop culture influence within that, but it's a much more sort of like niche topically, uh, but also goes very deep. And so all of those audiences are very different. So when we think about the question of who is the complex network fan, it fragments really quickly. Now we've scaled at all of those too, because you know, we've managed to do that over the last 18, 20 years of existence. But the idea is, for us and is to make sure that we understand which targets we're, are, we're, we're supposed to address and which ones we're hitting. So the complex network fan, if, I, if in short, I know that's a long answer, are there for a quick question um, is a core 18 to 34 male female us based that lives in metropolitan area or desires to live in a metropolitan area and wants to find the thing that's next and coolest in the world they want to know about cool stuff they want to know about style music that's the common really yeah right interesting what are you what are you working on lately at complex what, what are, are you building products are you you know mostly trying to unearth more inch, more insights on sales, become more efficient uh, revenue. Like what's going on lately? Everything all at once, but the most, re- <laughs> the, the most recent, ex- like the most recent project that we just completed was complex land. Um, and so, you know, we've done something called complex con over the last three years um, out, out in Long Beach and then also Chicago, uh, which is like 60,000 people attending essentially like the, the Super Bowl of streetwear uh, and fashion and pop culture all rolled up into one. Uh, and so that's like 60,000 people over a weekend. It's kind of incredible. Um, I can't wait till the world goes back to normal so we can go to a complex con again. Yeah. But in a world that's quarantined, we wanted to bring an offering that's more of a digital space. We've seen a lot of that out in market, but I think that our approach to it um, was actually sort of 
redefining for digital events in of itself. What we built was uh, a WebGL interactive site that a user could go to uh, and experience this world interactively, right? And so you can actually explore that, the you could actually explore the world in almost a video game style, but have interactive content, have per, uh, purchase opportunities, have a chat where that's interactive, a theater, an art experience. And I, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I built a flagship of monitoring metrics to look at this thing over the course of the week that it was live and we crushed it. Uh, we, you know, we had a, a deluge of traffic over the course of that week, a lot of content opportunities, a lot of brand integration. It was, it was pretty amazing, actually. I think it was a bit of like sort of a career defining, company defining moment. And, you know, we're already looking forward to 2.0. So that's the most recent thing I think we've done that's like super impactful, um, at least outwardly facing. Right. We've got a, a With that of- though, sorry to interrupt you, like you, you kind of described it. You can't just throw together, oh, let's just throw a Zoom together and get some people on there and, and we'll recreate the convention or the panels that we were going to do. Like you had to, I imagine you had to investigate all kinds of new different cutting edge technologies for virtual events. And like, how do you, how did you figure out how to do that? Well, you know, it's a good question, and I, I mean, I can't pretend to be the one who, who came up with this. Our, you know, our between our CTO Alexei Bakshev and uh, you know, and our, and our head of events and our head of sales Edgar Hernandez, they came up with the what what they thought would be an impactful pivot against the desire to have a complex con. So, and looked at all the technologies that one might be able to accommodate that, and decided that this is the one that would resonate the most with our audiences, and then be even beyond our audiences. Because you know the the big difference too between a complex con and uh, a digital event is that a, a digital event is more easily global, right? You don't have to travel. Yep. Obviously, you can roll out of bed and do that. And you know, yeah, it actually opens more opens it up to a wider group theoretically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we had visits from uh, 198 countries. Wow. Um, yeah, uh, we had people in Japan rolling out of bed at 8 a.m. and logging in. You could see that traffic blip day over day over day. It's kind of amazing. With your title, you're the, you're the, you're the business intelligence person, but you, you've, you've also got a secondary title. You're, you're the GM of Complex Collective. What is Complex Collective? Why did you launch it? What did you, when did you decide to do with that? You know, we talked a little bit about the sort of roadmap of how I, I came to understand what Complex did uh, and get deeper and set into like, you know, some of our business practices and also like our revenue diversity. And one of the early things I identified at Complex was that we needed a closer look at, uh, you know, behavioral and qualitative insight against our audience. Um, and we didn't have an engine to do that. And so Complex Collective was launched about a year ago. We're a year and change in now. And it's become our, it, it, and it is, it's our primary audience insight research engine. Uh, so what we do is we offer a direct line of insight to 30,000 qualified sort of high intent, uh, diverse young people from all over the world. Um, and so it's a research platform that allows for us to dig into the both qualitative and then match that with the quantitative behavior that we're seeing from all the other sort of metrics that, that I also get pulled together from the BI side. Um, we offer this internally to our business units. And we also offer it as a product to our business partners, both to enhance sort of their positioning in market for them to get a better understanding of, you know, how either their brand is perceived or how they want to sort of take their roadmap. And we've been working with, you know, a, like a number of clients over that over the last year in, in doing just that. So is that more akin to like having your own little mini comp score, like where you know what these people are doing online, or is it really like a giant focus group where you can ask them questions and get get sense of what they how they view brands and things like that? More akin to a giant focus group than it is uh, than it is a panel for comp score. Uh, it, you know, we 
obviously we keep demographic tracking for all the all the, all the folks who have opted in and, and we maintain that over time and so we have a really good understanding of who both who they are and what their interests are and so you know we looked at the some of the things that you can pull down from a comp score from an affinity standpoint when we wanted to understand you know what we wanted to be able to track and and, and speak about from the insights that we were generating but we use surveys and panels where right now we're isolated so you know from a quarantine standpoint so sure you know we, we can't pull p- people into the office but we would certainly be doing that but you know we're we do insight exercises on on various research topics over the course of the year both for our own usage as well as you know directed and or sponsored by clients what do you make of uh, that sounds like i'm sure it's not every publisher would, would love to recruit thirty thousand people and have them you know on speed dial <laughs> but it's not easy to even it's not, it's not even easy to have a direct relationship with any of your readers like what? What do you make of? I guess how challenging was it to build that? And what do you make of the market right now, where everybody's trying to become a direct consumer brand? It's not either you're through subscriptions or memberships. It's not easy, and it's it's not easy to do across across the industry across categories. Yeah, it's 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 very difficult. Uh, I'll, uh, amongst my challenges, you know, it, I I spent a lot of time worrying about maintaining that that uh, that thirty thousand and trying to expand on it. The attrition on it is really high, right? So you've got to keep people interested. What yeah. we identified pretty early is from a community management standpoint, these people really want to be heard, and so they but they also want to participate in a community where that's happening in a more engendered basis. And so you know, we have private social channels, private groups that we go back to them with the insight that we're generating, and we all talk about it. Right. And so, you know, we use sometimes occasionally we use light incentive for survey participation. But what we found is actually people are, are this community specifically is much more uh, incentivized by being in the in, in a community that is discussing active topics. You know, we've they're, got, they're into it. They like their ability to influence a little bit. They totally do. You know, yeah. they want to talk about COVID and they want to talk about politics and they want to talk about, you know, the future of sports. Um, so when we when we go to them with topics, it's, you know, it's about something that bo- both they want to speak about and that's something also that w- they want to tell everybody else. Now, does that help you? I, obviously, this group doesn't exist for you to just to, to remarket to or to, to use for ad targeting purposes, but does it help you? Because every publisher, while they're also trying to build more of a database and relationship, they're also trying to figure out the the future of ad targeting with past post cookie, post IDFA, they want to be able to have be able, the permission to, to market to more people. Does it just give you an advantage in this, in this new universe? Or are you still trying to fight the same battles everyone else is? Well, listen, we're, we're definitely fighting the same battles as everyone else. I mean, it's, it's always going to be a challenge to fragment your attention when you're dealing with like an increasingly closed and isolated ecosystem, like, you know, your Facebook or your Google. I think maybe where the difference is for us is like, you're not going to find me complaining about a Google and Facebook is ruining the industry. It's for sure more difficult to manage campaigns and project CPMs, but there's a very robust, there was a very robust marketing industry before attribution became turnkey. Um, so, you know, it's sort of time you roll up your sleeves. I think I'd much rather focus on adapting to that change. And so, you know, when we think about visible attribution, there's, that's been on the decline for a while now and good marketers and publishers are, are already actively adapting. And so what, what you know, the way we we tried to address that. It's about a year ago, uh, more than a year ago, true, like just a year and change. We introduced a cookie-less, a cookie-less first-party attribution to our ecosystem, and so that in of itself, in, in pushing out to market or monetizing that out to market, anonymous, you know, in anonymous segments, that's returned. Uh, that's a seven-figure big business for us right now. You know, it's been great about applying assurance to brand partners and giving our internal efforts depth of sight. Uh, you know, when you take that attribution, that segmentation, and you marry it to the qualitative that we're building out of our first party research is pretty powerful. So I, I like our positioning. Certainly, 
there's a lot of challenge, uh, but I actually like a lot where this fragmentation sort of takes us uh, from a different a differentiation opportunity standpoint. So I guess you, you could turn it into an advantage if you've got a solution and that others don't on this front. You know, listen, it's going to be a challenge for folks who have to build scale into it because that that's hard enough to do in of itself. But if you if you have a little bit of scale or at least, you know, a decent growth strategy, then applying getting out trying to get out ahead of it is a good idea. I, I think we you know we've seen some aggregation of you know v- various publishers coming together uh, you know through like a trade desk kind of situation yep. and, and 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 trying to you know sort of build sort of mass mass speed. Um, but and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I think that you know your larger publishers with very decent scale and very decent time spent can can attack this themselves. It takes a little bit more work, but but certainly they're capable of doing it. Yeah, but that that is going to be the trick, isn't it? With any any of these big consortiums, whether it's the trade desk or or, or whoever, big publishers are going to going to have to wrestle with. Well, do I want to help the whole industry? Do I want to, or or can I build my own thing that will be that much more powerful and useful for me? Yeah, I, I think that's completely right. I mean, yeah, I think the initial question should be, can I do it on my own? If I can't, then yeah, I'm, I'm going to throw throw a bag in with you know some other folks and try to build mass speed. Nobody wants to lose their business because they can't see their audience. Um, by yeah. the same token, by the same token, there are technologies out there right now that you can begin to address this, and you know it's a moving target for sure, absolutely. And not everybody is in a place where they can build, uh, you know, their own research arm. Uh, but you know, if if we can do it, uh, other folks are capable as well. How do you apply that? I always wonder. This is challenging. I think before we, you know, we, the the dawn of the the decline in visible attribution that you described it. But how do you apply this these principles to? More and more, I'm sure you're doing lots and lots of branded content, uh, whether that's you know a video series underwritten by a brand or a special event. Well, maybe maybe not live events these days, but lots of different special virtual events. How, how do you how do you apply those ver- um, attribution principles well to that kind of stuff if you can? Yeah, I mean, it's you're bringing up an interesting point too, right? Because I'm only we're only limited by the like in signal generation by how thoroughly I can apply a tagging architecture to my content, right? right. And when I think about content, it's to me. All we, we make all kinds of content, whether an event is content, whether it's editorial or a podcast or, you know, video and branded, like branded or, or organic, um, all of that really, my ability to, to, to bring it back to who is experiencing it really a bit depends on how well I can tag it. Now, I can't, some of that stuff gets deployed out to other ecosystems in a distributed manner. And so I, my, my ability to tag it is, is, is limited. But if I'm, if I'm pushing it out from one of our O&Os, uh, you know, in our O&O platforms, then, you know, I can tag it to my heart's content truthfully. And, and, and that allows for me to, to apply that attribution that we apply on site and then bring a more persistent identification to those platforms as well. Um, and so we do a lot of testing uh, in order to try to in order in order to try to maintain that attribution, um, and and additionally, and we apply that to our branded uh, executions as well. What about what measurements? Same kind of issues where you have to be a lot more creative and use a whole lot of new technology because of all the changes, or is that going to be a little bit more easy to navigate? I don't think it's easier. I mean, uh, similar technologies can be applied applied to, to, to each. I mean, brands are interesting because, you know, specifically when they're coming in through agency, agencies are, 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 are very facile and, you know, and want to be able to validate, you know, campaign metrics, um, you know, to a really high degree so that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of QA uh, w- within that. And so certainly we've had to step up our game with, with regard to like campaign metrics and that, and that kind of tracking. Our RevOps team does a really good job of, of pulling that all together um, and, and we assist them as well. 
Anyway, I want to come back to the, the, where we started, maybe to wrap things up on this kind of question. Is you, you're all the all the kind of things you're describing, the stuff you're building. Again, it's not the typical media and advertising professionals uh, kind of ta- tasks or skills they're, they're they've come up through. Typically, are, are we going to see? Are we going to have to see more Aaron Braxton's? Not that there's any, there's another one, but do do publishers and agencies have to start recruiting from the kind of places you worked and start pulling in more different kinds of talent and data science? Is that is it going to be hard? Is that happening? Hard. It's hard to answer. I, I mean, first of all, it's flattering. So thank you. Um, you know, I, you're I unicorn, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's, let's talk to Jonathan about that. <laughs> um, he's, he's, he's a unicorn himself, I, I think in, in, a, in a lot of respects. So I don't necessarily know that you need a business intelligence function or a research function matched into all of that. Um, in, in coming from the same person, right? Like you, you, you can execute these things. You don't need a unicorn to do them. Is it a nice to have? I, I, I suppose so. I don't know. I'm, I'm a little uh, red cheeked right now. <laughs> but I, I do, I do wonder if you'll, if we'll just start seeing more attempts at recruiting. I think you've already seen this. Let's try and get some people out of consulting. Let's try and get people out of these think tanks and places that were not, you know, the kid with the marketing degree that we just went into an agency right away. It's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out over time. The talent yeah. wars. I think there's a lot to be said for looking outside of industry uh, in order to find expertise that, you know, could be applied to a lot of these situations. You know, I mean, the nice thing about consulting is that you get a wide skill set because you're asked to do all kinds of different things. And being able to apply all of those to, to you know, to one enterprise is actually a nice thing for me because, it, it, one, it keeps it interesting. But two, I'm never bored. Right. Like right. Just, that just never happens. I haven't woken up a day and been bored at a complex because we are doing always new, new and interesting things. And we're, you know, and, and it, there's always something new on the horizon. Um, yeah. It just, it, it doesn't require, you don't have to go to management consulting, just it requires a curious and sort of flexible mindset. Right. And plus I got the, the wardrobe has got to be better. The musical taste is cooler. I think all those things probably help. Yeah. I definitely had to step up my, like, you know, <laughs> my, my, my shoe game for sure. Um, Absolutely. I, I, I'm still an amateur with respect to that as well. <laughs> Quarantine's working for that front. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. Exactly. <laughs> Anyway, Aaron Braxton, terrific conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time out. Really interesting stuff. And and, uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again down the road. Thanks a lot. Hey, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. A big thanks to Aaron Braxton, VP of Business Intelligence at Complex Networks, and of course, my partners at AppsFlyer. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate and leave a review. We have lots more to bring you, so be sure to hit that subscribe button. And we'll see you next time for more on what's next in marketing.